Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars Messina and today is Saturday, October 21st, 2023. And I believe we are now on episode, I didn't check. I think we're on episode 127. Let me check really quickly here. Um, no, we're on episode 128. Episode 128 is where we are. Ever since my early childhood, I've been fascinated with vampires. I've never outgrown this charm that they have over me. And as we approach Halloween, my thoughts drift to Dracula, who is the premier and my favorite vampire. I thought I'd put him under my microscope and give him a psychological profile. In observing his psyche, I think we might discover why he invokes both fear and empathy in legions of fans since he first appeared in print in 1897. Obviously, I am not a psychiatrist. I'm also obviously not the author of the novel, Dracula, and I am not a vampire, or so you think. What I am is a reader, and I'm a fan, and I am capable of critical thinking, and I think this experiment is going to be fun, and not to mention seasonal. So gear up for Halloween. We are going into the mind of the vampire. So first, let's define a vampire. For our purposes, a vampire is a mythical creature that subsists on feeding upon the vital essence of a living being. Now, I say vital essence instead of blood because not only does the vampire bite you and drink the blood of its victim, but they also... Um, take away that victim's free will and force them into doing vampiric bidding. So yes, blood, like it says in the novel, the blood is the life, but what is that essence? The actual essence of a living being, that spark that makes them alive. Um, he kind of takes that and controls it. So generally speaking, we can deduce that Bram Stoker's fictional character of Dracula is a complex character who is driven by a combination of um, survival, power, revenge, companionship, and self-protection. He is also driven, driven by his beliefs in the superiority of vampires over human beings. And of course, all other creatures because he can actually transform himself into, you know, um, wolves and bats and legions of rats. Additionally, um, he has this strong need for control. Okay, he, it, this is demonstrated all over the novel, but for example, by the delegation of his power through his three vampire brides. 
So Dracula and his brides may seem erotic and they may serve as a display of polyamory, but his conga line of brides are more likely a symbol of his own loneliness, his insecurity, as well as his aforementioned need for control because the brides, even though they're vampires and even though they'll get you, they are, after all, also victims of the vampire. Dracula <clears throat> also seems to um, take perverse pleasure in, for, uh, tor in um, tormenting and manipulating... Oh, man. He takes perverse pleasure in tormenting and manipulating people, as seen in his interactions with people like Jonathan Harker or really like Mina Murray Harker and of course R.M. Renfield who <clears throat> even though um, he kind of seeks to be enslaved by the vampire but we'll get into that he's a little bit different anyway while Dracula is a powerful vampire who has been alive for centuries he still feels the need to surround himself with people, even if they're not there of their own free will. For all of his evil intentions and actions, he's living in a very human world, and like human beings, his primary need and desire is to live in relative comfort. But... Count Dracula is also motivated by his desire for revenge as seen through his vengeful acts against those who have wronged him in the past. So, <clears throat> I don't know if you've read the novel Dracula. It, it's large. It is a large tome. Um, if you pick up the book, it is quite thick. So it's a lot of reading. But late in the novel... When Dracula escapes from the vampire hunter Van Helsing and Van Helsing's associates, the Count declares, My revenge is just begun. Now, it is not immediately clear for what offense Dracula feels he must obtain revenge, but a compelling potential reason presents itself in the opening chapters when Dracula retells the proud but disappointing history of his family. In chapter three, he speaks of the brave races who fought as the lion fights for lordship. The Count, while acknowledging the power his people once held, also laments the fact that the warlike days are over. This frustration manifests in his attempt to take revenge against the entire human race for their centuries of persecution and destruction of his kind. <clears throat> in my feeble attempt to diagnose Count Dracula with a psychological pathology, I find that Dracula's past as a wartime general is left largely unexplored in the novel. It is difficult to say definitively, but it's possible that he has post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, also known as PTSD. 
given his centuries-long experience with violence and warfare, it's possible that his feelings of powerlessness and vulnerability, as well as his need for control and dominance, could have resulted in a huge laundry list of neuroses. And often, the intensity and the severity of a neuroses, such as PTSD, if it gets really bad, and especially if it lasts for centuries, can potentially lead to psychotic expression. Dracula's strong sense of superiority, as well as his desire for revenge against all of the human race. Um, well, my goodness, you could um, describe him as like a sociopath. Um, you could also say that it's a really severe form of PTSD. Even though he lives in the now, his mind is imprisoned by centuries of real betrayal and real pain. So he lashes out because while his physical war is over, he's still waging it in his mind. Given Dracula's past as a former ruler and monarch, it is more than possible that he has a, a superiority complex. Now, again, like I said, I'm not an expert, but I do a lot of reading. I wouldn't suggest, and they're all suggestions, not diagnoses, plus he's not real. But anyway, I wouldn't suggest that he has a narcissistic personality disorder because narcissists, they will adapt their personalities and manipulate people to earn trust and affection. They want people to love them. While Dracula does demonstrate some of this behavior to lure people to him, he ultimately couldn't care less about what people think of him. If people don't like him, that's just proof that they're weak and that they're fools and he doesn't like them either. He has no problem forcing human beings into his orbit. Whether or not they like it is none of his concern. Because whether you like it or not, he's using you. Um, it is this disregard and this contempt for people and what they may think or feel that is indicative of a superiority complex. Okay, so lording over the aforementioned legions of brides is also used to bolster his sense of superiority. It is difficult to say definitively whether or not Dracula has depression based on the limited information given in the novel, but it is possible that he has some form of depression. His centuries-long life of isolation and loneliness have likely taken a toll on him, leading to feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, and despair. His actively sought-after self-isolation only feeds on this sense of loneliness. His ultimate vulnerability, and which is that he's difficult to kill, I mean, he has been alive for centuries, but he can be severely injured and debilitated also for several more centuries. 
And this very unique vulnerability that he has may also lead to a state of depression. His desire for revenge against humanity can be seen as an attempt to cope with that said depression. Now, let's take Dracula into the realm of Sigmund Freud. What might Freud say about this vampire? The very founder of psychoanalysis might diagnose Dracula with an oral fixation. And to put this into context, Freud taught that every child goes through a series of fixed psychosexual stages, which he labeled oral, anal, phallic, latency, and genital. The name of each stage apart from latency highlights the area of the body, which is the main source of pleasure at that stage, as well as the main potential source of frustration in a person. At the oral stage, the baby is all about the mouth. The baby gets contentment by putting objects into his or her mouth. Babies suck, they breastfeed, and they bite. And when they see people eating, even though they don't have that, that mechanism yet that works, um, they, they want that food because they want to put it in their mouth. So <clears throat> by using their mouth, these babies pander to the infantile id, which, it, which for Freud represents our wildest primitive instincts. The pleasures of the baby id are oral, and if they are thrown off balance, that could lead to an oral fixation. Infants who are not well fed may become orally fixated. Freud also suggested that if a baby is too well fed, that could also lead to an oral fixation. The orally frustrated baby might become a psychologically dependent adult who is always trying to find what he or she was denied in infancy. These babies might also develop into highly manipulative people. Freud himself smoked cigars even after he developed cancer of the jaw. He needed oral stimulation and he often said that he couldn't think if he couldn't smoke. In Freud's lifetime and in his society, a doctor who smoked was still acceptable and definitely more acceptable than a doctor who might bite his nails or suck on his thumbs while he was, you know, in conference with his patients. Now, Freud taught about three levels of consciousness, the id, the superego, and the ego. Now, the id part of our consciousness seeks pleasure. The superego tries to uphold our highest standards, and the ego has to deal with both and balance both to find a way to operate in reality. So in other words, and I saw this written somewhere, um, I can't remember what psychologists put it in these words, but I thought this was um, 
a pretty brilliant way of putting it. So he said that the ego is in a dark cellar in which a well-bred spinster lady, played by the superego, and a sex-crazed monkey, played by the id, are forever engaged in mortal combat, the struggle being refereed by a rather nervous bank clerk, which is the ego. So the ego has to balance the demands of the id and the superego because neither one of them is going anywhere. And they both ask a great deal of the, of the ego. So the id, that's the part of the mind we share with lower animals and it's governed by the pleasure principle. The ego is the executive of the personality and is governed by, governed by the reality principle. And the superego is the moral component of the personality. And that consists of the conscience, conscience and the ego ideal. So what does this all mean for Dracula and his potential oral fixation? Now, again, Freud said that the aim of psycho psychoanalysis was, and I quote, where it was, their ego shall be. The vampire's problem is that he's fixated at the oral stage and therefore stuck in the id. Couple that with apparent paranormal powers and you have a highly manipulative creature. And a dangerous one. Freud's rival, Carl Jung, or Jung, saw the vampire as representative of what he said was the dark unconscious aspect of the self that the ego tries to avoid as it bubbles with destructive energy, close quote. Jung developed the theory of the archetypes, which are figures that are ancient in the human psyche. Now, it would be too easy to equate Dracula with the archetype of the shadow, and you certainly could. But let's look at the other archetypes. And this one might sound counterintuitive when it comes to Dracula, but look at this, the healer. The healer archetype, for example, is intriguing because it appears in every single culture and it originates in the earliest tribes of ancient man. And it is part of the human experience to be hurt, wounded or injured in some way we all are, whether that's physical, emotional and or spiritual. And because of this, there has always been a need for someone who shows an aptitude for how to help the hurt person. The development of this archetype has had some interesting twists and turns in its very long life. The first one that comes to my mind is Jesus. Okay, but can we see or imagine that the vampire is the archetype of the wounded healer. It is important to note that shamans have 
have to be, we talked about shamans last week. Well, they have to be initiated, you know, into this, um, into their role. And they often deliberately suffer pain before they can heal so that they will know how to heal someone else. And if that's the case, could there be some sort of union redemption for the vampire? Do they have within them the potential to become a shaman? Okay, now, people like Dracula, you know, they denounce shaman, they, they fear shaman, they try to kill shaman, but he might have that to potential, okay? Now, it might be too late for Dracula to develop into a shaman, but maybe not for Anne Rice's vampires. In fact, I think you do see some of Anne Rice's vampires actually healing people. Or some other fi fictional bloodsuckers. It might not be too late for them to become shaman. Now, the vampire has another psychological problem, and that is sadism. Now, there is a famed sadist, the Marquis de Sade, who said, and I quote, How delightful are the pleasures of the imagination in those delectable moments. The whole world is ours. Not a single creature resists us. We devastate the world. We repopulate it with new, new objects, which in turn... We immolate. The mean to every is ours, and we employ them all. We multiply the horror a hundredfold. Now, the great writers Lord Byron and John William Polidori, they went to schools where they were flogged. They went to schools where they were taught by sadists. So they intimately knew sadism and that knowledge became a factor in each of their vampire tales. The vampire is not just an orally fixated sadist. He is also a cunning one. He may seek out masochists who hope to be controlled and beaten and whatever else. We see a great example in the novel through the character of Renfield. I brought him up earlier. Now, Renfield is kind of seen like a raving lunatic. Um, and so Dracula finds it really easy to manipulate him. Now, at the end, we find out that he also is a victim of the vampire. But he goes looking for the vampire he even starts eating live beings, um, starting with like flies, and then he moves up to spiders, and then he begs for rats. Okay, so while Dracula manipulates Harker and Mina, he does so against their will 100%. Now Renfield desires to be his slave, and Dracula allows it and he uses Renfield to do his bidding while Dracula himself stays hidden or in disguise because once again, he's self-protective. 
Now back to Freud for a moment. In his three papers on sexual theory, Freud argued sadism and masochism are often found in the same individuals and this is called sadomasochism. So for him, sadism is a distortion of the aggressive component of the male sexual instinct and masochism is a form of sadism against the self. The tendency to inflict and receive pain <clears throat> during relationship um, was, um, according to Freud, the most common and important of all perversions. And when I say relationship, I'm talking sexual relationship. And if you read Dracula, or if you look at the plays or the movies, they're all very sexual. Even if you don't see sex happening, it's there. Okay. And the pain inflicted during these types of relationships, again, he said the most common and important of all perversions. And he ascribes it as so much else to incomplete or deviant psychological development in early childhood. The sadist may also want to unconsciously punish someone who attracts him precisely because they did arouse his desire. Now, this is from my own life. I know a man, um, he once, ad he admitted, I'm sorry, he admitted to once being a womanizer. And he said that the most unforgivable thing that a woman could have done to him in his past was to fall in love with him. And he would punish them for it. And part of the reason for this is because he was basically self-loathing. Another reason for this is because the person who loved him in a way had control over him. So he lashed out with cruelty toward these people who showed him love. While this was going on, he had a female friend and it wasn't me. Um, but he had a female friend who pointed all of this out to him and recognizing it, he, he sought counseling. And now fast forward, you know, two decades or so, and now he's happily married to that female friend and they fight, but he's not cruel to her. So he was able to recognize and manage the things that were hurting him that he used to hurt other people. Now for the vampire, the love object is all object, like a trophy or like a, a tiger skin. So neither love or friendship have anything to do with his um, allure to an object. Now, I'd like to share one more observation on Dracula. Last week, I took a class on a field trip to see a play called Mesmerized, a Ben Franklin science and history mystery. In the play, Benjamin Franklin used the scientific method to try to either prove or disprove Franz Anton Mesmer's theory of animal magnetism. <clears throat> Water break, sorry. 
<clears throat> while I'm watching this play, Mesmer was reminding me a bit of Dracula. Even though the play was meant to teach STEM to school children, <clears throat> I also found the portrayal apropos for these October days leading up to Halloween. Dracula, like Mesmer, was a type of hypnotist. And like the sun and the moon, Dracula was a natural influence and he wielded the invisible force of animal magnetism that was described by Mesmer. Now, Mesmer in his work established intense contact with his subjects. He would sit in front of his patient, he'd press their thumbs into his hands and stare into the patient's eyes. You know, like, look into my eyes, almost like that. Then he ran his hands down their arms and he pressed his fingers on an area just below the diaphragm, sometimes holding it there for hours. And this would kind of send the subject into a trance and maybe they might involuntarily convulse. And he created such a scene that the then French king, Louis XVI, appointed a very high-powered commission to investigate Mesmer's work. One of the members of the commission was Benjamin Franklin, the then American ambassador to France, who also did pioneering work on electricity, not to mention being one of the founding fathers of the United States. The commission claimed that Mesmer's results had more to do with the power of suggestion than with any invisible magical force. Now, could it be that the vampire's powers were, or were in part, powers of suggestion instead of or along with animal magnetism? You can find out for yourself if you rid your home of garlic and of crucifixes and leave your bedroom window open tonight and enjoy the dulcet tones of the music of the children of the night. We have now reached bedtime stories from the acoustic bookshelf. We will close the coffin on this episode with an excerpt from the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. I began to fear as I wrote in this book that I was writing in too much detail. But now I am glad that I went into detail from the start. For there is something so strange about this place and everything in it that I cannot help but feel uneasy. I wish I were safely out of here or that I had never come. It may be that this strange night existence is taking its toll on me. If only that were all. If there were anyone to talk to, I could bear it, but there is no one. I only have Count Dracula to speak with, and he 
I fear I am myself the only living soul within the place. Let me be plain so far as facts can be. It will help me to cope and imagination must not run riot with me. If it does, I am lost. I only slept a few hours when I went to bed and feeling that I could not sleep anymore, got up. I had hung my shaving mirror by the window and was just beginning, beginning to shave. Suddenly I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard the Count's voice saying to me, good morning. I started for it amazed me that I had not seen him since the reflection of the mirror covered the whole room behind me. Having been startled, I had caught myself slightly, but I did not notice it at that moment. Having answered the Count's greeting, I turned to the mirror again to see how I had been mistaken. This time, there could be no mistake, for the man was behind me and I could see him over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed, but there was no sign of a man in it except myself. This was startling and coming on the top of so many strange things was beginning to increase that vague feeling of uneasiness, which I always feel when the count is near. But at that moment, I saw the blood, the cut had bled a little and the blood was trickling over my chin. I put down the razor, turning as I did so half round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demonic fury and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I pulled away and his hand touched the rosary beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him for his anger passed so quickly that I could hardly believe it was ever there. Take care, he said. Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. Then seizing the shaving mirror, he continued, and this is the wretched thing that had done the mischief. Away with it. And opening the window with one wrench of his terrible hand, he flung it out the window, which shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. Until next week, arrivederci.